Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that specializes in blink-and-you'll-miss-it appearances, much like Jaspreet Bumrah in international cricket these days. I'm your host, Benny, and thank you for tuning in. This week, my fellow host, Mike, got to chat with Dr. Paul Felton, human movement specialist and senior lecturer in biomechanics at Nottingham Trent University. Dr. Felton and Mike take a deep dive into the role of biomechanics in cricket, including the difference in biomechanics between the men's and women's game, the acceptance of cricket biomechanics at the international level, and much, much more. Stay tuned for a fascinating discussion on one of the lesser understood facets of the modern game. All right, Paul, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you and uh, appreciate your time. Uh, let's start with your journey. How did you get into cricket and, and how did you get into your focus in biomechanics? Yeah, my journey into cricket is quite a strange one, to be fair. So it started at primary school, so I was probably about five, six, seven, something like that. And I had a German teacher that liked cricket and we ended up doing it in school in PE and it kind of then I ended up at a local club and it kind of snowballed from there, but it wasn't a traditional route into cricket in terms of I went to a local club. It started with a teacher from a country that doesn't play cricket. So, um, yeah, a bit non-traditional in terms of that sense. But again, learned from somebody that enjoyed the game and realised that I kind of was a bit better than that at fo- than football or other sports and kind of just snowballed into through junior teams. And then we got towards about 13, 14, 15 and I tried to bowl. I, I had a good club coach in terms of was very good around us and encouraging us to play cricket um, but I wanted to find out a bit more about the technique and technical stuff and I was a big Essex member at the time um, mum and dad used to put us on the train in the morning we'd go to Chelmsford get off the train watch cricket all day get on the train get home get picked up again I think it was their childcare at the time but it, we had at Essex we, um, it was when they were going through a good period with T20 starting Andy Flowers there um, Ian Pomp was the bowling coach. Got Darren Goff was there. Um, Dale Stain was the overseas. So there was some really good players. Um, 
and within playing cricket within Essex, I knew of the book that come out from Ian Pond and started there and had the book, but it really wasn't a decision then. Looking back now, I kind of can see how I was probably subconsciously influenced by that and what was involved in the science behind it. Um, but it wasn't really a choice at that point in time that I was going to go into this. It's kind of like where I've ended up. And now looking back, you can see where them seeds started, like subconsciously. Um, and then I carried on playing, come to uni at Loughborough in the UK, which is known for sport. Um, got involved with local cricket, then ended up finishing a maths degree and not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, and it's a true story. I sat in my uni room after the end of my maths degree and Googled sport and maths and biomechanics come up and the hot thing on the google hit list was do a master's in biomechanics at loughborough now there's probably some algorithm tricks there that make sure that where you are in the location everything appeals to you but i remember <laughs> ringing my dad and going i'm staying here for another year and i'm going to do this master's in biomechanics and fortunately he helped fund it and at the end of that year um an opportunity with the ecb to do a funded phd come up and was fortunate enough to get through the application process was offered it and then my journey within elite cricket and working with some of the best coaches and players that England has had over the last 10 or 15 years started. And then that's obviously snowboarding more recent years where I've left and gone and worked with some of the other players over in Australia. Um, cricket Island I've worked with and I've worked with a number of other players around the world, like individually. So yeah, from a German teacher back when I was five or six saying, come and have a go at this game, it has snowballed quite quickly, but none of it was ever really planned. It was kind of right place right time um that's how my journey has started and how i've got to where i am now that's that's amazing um yeah it's, it's such a unconventional way of doing things but uh but I'm, I'm sure you've enjoyed your your journey and just you know letting letting things happen to you as well as you know uh as you said just finding things that that uh are still in your interest um, so I'll, I'll jump into biomechanics and, uh, I've been reading about biomechanics for a while. As I, as we talked before, we started recording, um, Habib has been on the show, you know him as well. So we've had conversations around that, but I think it's fair to say that the average fan still doesn't know the ins and outs of this concept. Um, so for their benefit, do you mind explaining with an example, uh, related to cricket? Yeah. So I think. Biomechanics is always like a dirty word in sports science that nobody really wants to talk about because it's related to the maths and the physics stuff that generally people don't like at school. But it's, I don't really, it's like just got a bad like media, I think, in terms of everybody knows what psychology is. It's about the brain. You've got physiology is about how different parts of our bodies work. But then the biomechanics is just about how you get your body to do the thing that you want it to do and how. Um, if you've got a task such as bowling or batting, how you actually do that. Um, and a lot of the time I talk to coaches and introduce biomechanics and I just ask them, well, do you stand up? And they're like, well, yes. And I'm like, well, your brain knows how to use all the bits of your body to stand up. That is biomechanics. And then you talk about how do you make decisions using biomechanics? And I quite often go, well, would you jump off a cliff or stand on the table and jump off? And you get a load of the, the older generation going, no, it hurt my knees and back to jump off a table but and start going down that route. And it's again, you start to talk about, well, you're making decisions based on what you know the outcomes of your movements are and whether your body can handle it or not. And that's biomechanics. And then I um, was lucky enough to go to Tokyo. And I don't know if you, in Fast and Furious, they've got that crazy like zebra crossing where lots of people walk across it. And, and I got a video of it. Mm -hmm. And I use that now within my teaching and kind of put it up on the board and go, what are everybody doing? They're all walking, they're all moving. 
but they're all doing it differently. But intuitively, we can look at it and we can understand why an older person's walking slower or why somebody's running across the road because they're about to get run over. Or there's different like things going on within the environment, different um, intentions. They want to get across the road to catch a train. They've got different parts of their body, they're different strength, sizes, heights, weights, ages, etc. So everybody does the same movement, but does it differently because of all of these different factors. And that's what biomechanics is. It's just understanding how all these factors influence the movement. And then I throw it open and go, well, actually, as coaches, you've got all of these players and they're all trying to bat or bowl. They all do it differently. Like, can you understand the factors behind that, which makes them do it differently? So I think technical coaching and what we do like within coaching to help players complete tasks or movements is biomechanics. But coaching is such a bigger area in terms of you've got the psychological support how to get the best out of players create the right environments the tactical side that because biomechanics in science is such a big area it doesn't feel like you can just pick it up and put it into coaching so we call it something different or it's kind of forgotten and it's kind of considered that's the coach's job to know about how to do these cricket movements but in reality every coach is a biomechanist we just use completely different language and um yeah so i think it's difficult to give you an example because all the time we're using biomechanics, but I think if we can get away from using the words, we don't use physiology for strength and conditioning, or well, we don't use psychology a lot of the time. We talk about like matchups or um, profiling or things like this. We don't use the words but underlying all these different areas in sports science. These three pillars are all within each one. So it's, yeah, I kind of think it gets forgotten, but I've thought for the last 10 years that, biomechanics is going to explode in sports science everyone's going to have this big light bulb moment again well actually if we look at technique we can find these 5 10 15 20 percent improvements in performance and reduce injury but it's not happened yet we're still looking at these like one percent marginal gains so um, i think it'll happen at some point but i do it's probably stuck on that crux of understanding how to use it and opening yourselves up to maybe getting it wrong and learning from that at times yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Um, and you mentioned one percent improvement in the injury uh, versus technique um, that piece. So share a little bit more about that. That's I'm very curious about that um, because in my understanding, this has been in the conversation, especially with professional you know cricketers, probably for the last at least decade, if not more. Um, um, and you know whether all cricketers think about it this way or whether certain teams do it, that obviously has been varying across countries and um, across leagues and standards, but um, share your thoughts around both of those aspects, how how well adopted this is, how well understood this is, and yeah, the improvements you've seen. Yeah, so the across the world thing's an interesting concept because um, traditionally you've had Australian research and maybe European or English research and at times within cricket, they've kind of conflicted with each other or found different results. And I wouldn't say that they're necessarily one's right and one's wrong. You kind of have um, limitations within research that leads you down different garden paths at times. So it might be that you haven't got elite players, you're looking at sub-elite players and they have some characteristics within that group, which might not necessarily be true of the top level. Or you might just have some sample size biases where everybody does it a certain way and then that gets linked with injury. So we've had this um, era or period of time around different action classifications and mixed actions and injuries and stress fractures. Um, and we know from the research we've done at Loughborough that almost 75 to 8% of all bowlers have mixed actions. So 
if you end up with a group of 20 and the ones with mixed actions have got injuries just because you've got 15 out of 20 of them in that band you can quite quickly end up with like a result which may not actually be representative of like 300 400 bowlers and it's why we have different statistical tests especially within medicine to try and prevent drugs getting authorized that cure things which and in reality when you put them out to a big scale they don't but in sports science we're kind of limited because we don't have hundreds of thousands of people to go and test so you have to kind of open up some of these statistical stuff to cut to allow you to infer some differences um so we've had this mixed actions thinking um and it's led to some well i'd say well-meaning advice has led to some like results with players that hasn't had the best results so i've worked with some players that have gone through academies and pathways where they've had natural actions that have been changed because they were mixed and then they end up with stress fractures consecutively because their bodies aren't actually used to handling that movement it's not natural for them they end up in worse positions um, and then we've done some research more recently which kind of leads us away from mixed actions and actually some of the body positions you get into that you can get into regardless of whether you're mixed side or front on so um science is always evolving otherwise we'd all stop and have anything to do but so I think it's important to open yourself up to realize there isn't a right or wrong you're on this continuum of trying to find out what's the things that are right and what the things that could be wrong or might need some adjusting and I think across the world now we're better connected like I've spent part right. of lockdown consulting with a team in Australia and I've not been there once it's all been done over whatsapp and phone calls and scary really right. to see the results from it um and we're starting to work better with each other to understand these questions. Whereas in the past, I think from competitive advantage point of view, sometimes you're kind of like, well, we're working on this. We don't want them to know what we're working on. But from a health point of view, I think we're kind of getting a lot more tied up together just because it's duty of care for athletes. In terms of performance, I think we know what the best way of doing a lot of these actions are. But what we don't know is how certain individual aspects and constraints in terms of, say, strength or size change that movement pattern. So it might be that for the we yeah, so say in batting we know how to power hit, but we know power hitting in males and females looks different. Now why is that? Is it because the females have different strengths, they're different sizes, the balls are different weights, the bats could be different weights, etc. Or actually is it because the rules mean they have shorter boundaries and actually they power hit to make have a higher success of getting it over the boundary, which they can do with a different technique, whereas the males would probably get caught on the boundary with the same technique they don't hit it far enough the females actually can hit it over the boundary with that maybe suboptimal technique which increases their success of hitting the ball that distance more often so all of these different individual characteristics task characteristics environment characteristics come in to determine what your brain decides it's going to do and trying to understand that real big puzzle and how it leads to technique and performance and outcome is i think where we are at the moment um but we don't have all the answers and that's the exciting thing. And hopefully we won't have all the the answers for the next 20, 30, 40 years so that I can carry on working and answering questions. But as long as we can almost create this staircase of understanding and where people are on it in terms of these different characteristics and what you should be doing and then relaying it across to coaches and making it in practice, that's the biggest task, I think. Um, right. Um, one of the things I'm also curious about, and I'm going a little bit, off our agenda because I'm just curious on what you said. Um, but you mentioned there's been kind of opposing research that has come out of different countries. Um, 
curious how you also look at, I think you kind of touched upon it by saying characteristics within individuals, but, you know, regional strengths. So as an example, we know, you know, Jamaican athletes are excellent uh, sprinters uh, as compared to um, other countries, even in, in that same region, just because they're built is slightly different. So how do you adjust for those things? Um, is the research, you know, obviously, as you said, you don't have thousands of people to do this research on. Um, but how do you manage to sort of do the balance so that even in the, you know, select hundred that you look at, there's a good sample size across, across all the various, uh, types of body. Yeah. It's a good, great question to be fair. It's very difficult. Um, I think some of it comes from looking at other sports and also just other demographic research. So, um, you mentioned strength there. We also know like joint laxity or, um, hyperextensions more common in Asian and Caribbean players um compared to europeans so again we know elbow hyperextension has a massive impact on ball release speed um so there might be within a technique how do you keep the technique so that actually it promotes the elbow hyperextensions they're in a position for longer for it to take a benefit um so we kind of look at that sort of thing and question whether actually that population has some sort of benefit from that and then the only way in research that we've really tried to kind of answer these questions is trying to create a big widespread of abilities and different levels of ages and groups. So uh, the original research that Loughborough started in 2010 took, tried, took 20 of the best players who bowled 85 miles an hour and tried to kind of work out what they did over some that might bowl like 80 miles an hour. But everybody in that real international speed bracket was looked at. Uh, that's fine. But you get a group or, or some results that on average tell you what the best do and not everybody's capable of doing that so we've moved on from that we're now looking at trying to work out plot the pathway through so looking at adolescents and some academy players and then maybe younger players and how they go through this pathway and how you develop speed and does it change over time but also a lot of work's been done on how your back and spine adapt from an injury perspective and we're starting to understand that picture from a technique point of view much greater and workload a little bit but there's so many factors going to that it's quite difficult as well um and then we've also done some work where we've looked at what's the differences between males and females right and rather than trying to go females do it differently we know females are typically smaller and have less strength in certain parts of their body so it can give you some ideas or inclinations that if you've got males or adolescents with a smaller and with less strength what their techniques might be different to the best and trying to compare different groups to people so it's trying to create well this staircase and puzzle of trying to link different attributes within it that create causes and changes within technique um, and then trying to work out how you deliver that into coaching and coach development so that when you've got a player at a certain point at a certain time and the coach isn't sure which direction to go and they can come back to this and go all right it's not just i'm trying to coach him to be in a model that is as fast as 100 miles an hour because that's what i know is optimal from a whole global picture but actually for their body type at their age what is the right thing to do for them and what probably from a more important point of view is what shouldn't i do that's probably going to break them or put them on an injury table for a year or maybe lose a loss of confidence or performance so um it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, right. And I think it's trying to understand how many different approaches there can be and how we understand yeah. that is probably where we are now in terms of research. No, absolutely. That that makes sense. Um, and since you've touched on the women's game and how their you know, strength, how their power hitting is different, 
curious on what else have have we noticed so far how, what else has research shown in terms of you know differences between the men's game and women's game obviously you mentioned power hitting is one of them are there any other really different things or um do most of the other items align pretty well it's interesting so um the research is really in its infancy to start with so i wrote a paper on male female bowling 2018 i think it was published um and at the time i think there was three papers on performance in female cricket five on injury and something else um there's a group in south africa um i think uh one of the universities that i've have quite a lot to do with that are really focusing on female cricket um and they've done a recent review on all the injuries in cricket and they're quite different to what males experience probably because the speeds and the forces and etc aren't as high so um there's probably not that much difference between actually the physical structure of the bodies in terms of how much force is needed to break bone and ligaments and muscles in females compared to males but in the game obviously we're they're slower so the force is not as big you need probably a lot lower um, workload to create some of these stress fracture injuries we see a lot less of stress fractures in female crickets than we do in male crickets so there's a difference there having worked with and been good social friends with a few of the England bowling coaches that have worked with the females they do talk about it being the same game but different so the speed of it's different um, where the ball goes is different so although you would coach the players the same the tactical side of it where the ball might go the field you might have could be different as well so it's worth being aware of that the game is different is different but it's the same game so um yeah i think there are quite a lot of differences but I, it's now trying to understand are we coach should we be coaching them to get to a certain end point which is what we believe is the best now or can they get there and if not what's the limitation so i still think within the female game if you look at olympic athletes with all due respect on average the athletes in female cricket aren't as fit as olympic athletes so there's still a big fitness and strength gap to close based on the professionalism of the game being fairly recent um so that might change the answers and then we're conducting research on the best now and trying to deduce answers and are these going to have similar characteristics what the best will be in 20 years time or not so it's a bit chicken and egg at times because you've got female athletes being coached on male frameworks now do they not work or do they work and are we actually finding out or are we proving that they are the right way or the wrong way and it's a bit guesswork at times so um yeah there's a lot of questions around all of these different things within the game and how confident you can be with what you're finding to question and um what i would probably pin my hat on is the game is different the athletes have different characteristics and they have slightly different techniques and nuances and that doesn't mean that you have completely different games or staff, etc. You just need to understand right. these differences within the coaching development that we do and make it people understand. But I think it's the same for juniors as well. I think junior cricket is mm. quite different than male cricket and stuff like that. So, um, so, so listening to you answer that, it, it seems like coaches who are trained for you know men's cricket, if they know the subtlety, subtle differences with you know how women uh, perform their techniques and and so on they should be able to adapt to that but what we've seen in the last you know maybe decade or decade and a half is there's also a lot of specialization within coaching you know we have a wicket keeping coach now we have all these specialized roles 
because they really focus on you know each aspect of the game. So do you eventually see this becoming a specialized thing as well, where we only have you know female coaches versus male coaches, uh, just because of as as we learn more, do we see that being more likely? I think we'll have specialized areas, if that makes sense. So I think you'll have like specialized head coaches, specialized fielding, bowling, batting, all that. I'd be disappointed if it went down the route of you you had specialized coaches that only did male or female cricket because I personally, I view the game as I don't view it as male or female. I view it as a game where there's a continuum of techniques or movement patterns that you get from being very young all the way through to being as strong as you can be, hold all of it. And like that Brett Lee probably models the probably the best way of thinking about it from a bowling point of view. Like if you're looking at mm-hmm. bowling, you don't bowl like that when you're five years old all the way through. And at some point you stop your development because that's as far as you can get or as best as you can be. And I think whether you're a male or female, you go along that pathway. And I think as a coach, if you're a specialist coach in your area, you should understand that pathway and be able to develop players along it. So I'd be disappointed if it did end up did end up with specialist coaches based on gender on gender. Um but yeah, the game never surprises me. It could end up with specialist head yeah. coaches just because the game is different from that point of view. But I don't think the skills point of view, I think you should be able to or any coach worth, I believe, his salt should be able to work with any players, if that makes sense. And think about yeah. it, hopefully, and answer some of the <laughs> questions that are why. Absolutely. Um, let's do a little bit of a deep dive on specifically on fast bowling because I know, I mean, we all agree that that's probably an aspect where injuries are very common. Um, you know, even young fast bowlers get injured all the time. You mentioned stress factors. That's, that's definitely a problem. So I read about the four tent peg approach, um, which, you know, helps with alignment, helps with reducing injury. Um, you mentioned Ian Pond. Actually, that's where I read this, but I know a lot of other coaches have adopted it as well. Um, share your thoughts on it. And um, I guess, how do you adjust to somebody like Jaspreet Bumrah, who does things very differently, or even Lasit Malinga? You know, um, those ind- uh, idiosyncrasies are always there within individual players. Um, so do you think this is a good framework to start and then you just try to align them as much as possible to that uh, while still keeping it natural? Yeah, so there's a couple of places to start here. I think um, the four temp pegs, I think, is a really nice way of packaging up some of the key biomechanical principles that are important in fast bowling in terms of alignment, balance, and then the way you transfer the momentum from your run-up through that block into your bowling up. Um, Ian, I think, has done a great uh, job of packaging it up into a, a brand, if you want to call it that, or a way of selling it or getting people to understand it in the four temp pegs. Um, the way I look at it, I've never really... I don't talk about the four temp pegs because to me it's biomechanics. It's all fundamental. It's a movement pattern where you get balanced and then you sum the momentum through. So... Um, within the four temp pegs, all of these key underlining principles that maybe players or when I was 15 years old, when I looked at it, I wouldn't have understood all of the different ways that your body interacts. And it's a nice way of actually being able to get into some safe positions early. So I think that's fine. And I think there's other coaches out there trying to do different things. We're trying to brand different ideas and package up bowling styles in different ways. And some are good, some are bad, some are a little bit dangerous in 
terms of where they're packaging up just with a fundamental understanding of what actually you could end up doing. But I think that's just nature and coaching in, as well. Uh, not every piece of advice is going to be great, if that makes sense. There are going to be some times where you can learn from a mistake, etc. So um, in terms of that side of it, yeah, I think the branding of the four tempegs and etc. works. And then the second side of it is oh, actually what are we trying to do in all of these movements. And fast bowling, I think, is one of the movements where you, well, I think it's one of the only movements in sport where you kind of go, actually, you've got all of these body pieces and stuff to work with, but we're going to take away your elbow. And then it ends up with the only place or degree of freedom you've really got to correct your arm path is within your back. And that's not very healthy either. Um, so we end up with all manner of different problems because there's lots that can go wrong in the bowling action. And I always think of it as three movements. You've got the run up where your primary focus is trying to develop linear momentum, which if you're successful and you get a good level of momentum and you have the strength that you can carry all the way through your bowling action, then you kind of done your job. Like it just flows through and you have them Brettley actions. But if it goes wrong or if you don't have enough momentum, you end up having enough time for your brain to take over and go, well, actually, I've got all of these lovely big muscles in my body that I can use. And you end up trying to almost out-muscle a bad technique. And that's where I think we start to get with lots of problems because the muscular forces that you're putting the bottom half of your body that's going in the wrong directions into the right directions and trying to pull your arms and into the right places creates these massive loads within the back and you do it loads of times and eventually you stress fracture. Um, and we've done some research recently which looks at all of these technique attributes and we found some really interesting things. We reckon we can predict 90% of stress fractures based on two key technique points in terms of what you look like at back foot contact. Um, so we're getting better at it, but I think ultimately your brain has two jobs in all movements. One is to stay balanced. Like as soon as you start learning to walk or everything we do eat from mammals all the way in animals is you don't like falling over. You know, it hurts. Like as soon as the first thing you do and someone puts you on two feet as a kid and you fall over, it hurts. So you kind of learn straight away. Balance is more important than movement. And then you can then move by using your muscles and stuff and all sporting actions. The two key things to do are be balanced. And if you're balanced, you can then move properly. And I think a lot of the issues in all, sporting movements so if you don't get the balance part right you see lots of weird and wacky ways of human muscles and brains trying to solve puzzles that they weren't expecting to try and solve in time frames that aren't very long to sail solve them but the one thing that your brain doesn't like you doing is looking like an idiot or a fool so it'll always find a way to complete the task as best as it can to the detriment of your body's health so you've got balance and perform like what you got yeah, you've got balance and outcome. And in the middle, your health somewhere that your brain kind of sacrifices a little bit to um, complete the task. So as fast bowlers, it's not a great picture if you can uh, you create all of these massive forces to A, complete the task and try not to fall over. It ends up generally quite badly from a technique point of view. And, and But we don't spend enough time thinking about it and looking at it. And I think the Tempex does a really good job of keeping you safe um and putting you into a nice position to be able to generate pace from but ultimately like i have a phrase that i talk about with coaches around safe before pace so if you're not in a safe position you can't you shouldn't even be thinking about developing pace um in reality if you're not in a safe position you probably can't generate the pace that you're going to need to be in or you want to develop anyway so kind of it works in a circle but um 
yeah, that's my kind of my big thoughts. You could talk about it for three or four hours and go into all the intricate parts of it. But I do think that you, you need to have these three parts where you stay balanced and before you can generate the momentum in that final front foot contact ball release phase. And the Tempex does a good job of giving you some of that packaged underneath something that you wouldn't understand all the nuts and bolts. Mm. Um, and Ian does a job of trying to explain a little bit of that, and I think that's good. Um, but trying to get that now out into however many million people play cricket across the world into a, a safe environment because you can't start at the end. So if you land at front foot contact and it's going to be a car crash, it'll be a car crash regardless of whether you try and keep your leg straight or not. And there's a lot of social media stuff now going, oh, to bowl fast, you need a straight front leg. Well, if you keep a straight front leg in some of the positions you see young bowlers bowl with that bend, they're probably going to end up doing some damage quite quickly. So it's understanding that the movement starts at the start of the run-up and finishes probably somewhere at the end of the follow-through, not just trying to stop it in the middle and going, I'm going to change the knee angle here or here without thinking about how you're going to do that. Because if you don't change something before that point, you're not going to change that point. Um, and I think social media is very good at snapshots and pictures and, really? oh, look, so-and-so does this. And then you and I'm guilty of it. I was probably the same at that, like a younger age going, well, I'm going to go and try and do what, I don't know, Mitchell Stark does or... Right. The else girl, boom, like even Boomer like it. How many people in the world can get in the positions he gets into? But because someone on social media will go, well, Boomer can hyperextend and that's the best way to bowl. There's probably people out there trying to stretch themselves into all manner of different positions to be able to do that. Um, so I think it's, again, understanding being safe before you try and develop on some of these pace attributes and making sure that you can do it. And it's a really important message for coaches as well, making sure that your players can do what you're asking them to do rather than trying to make them do something that somebody else does. There's a great quote from Butch Harmon, who's a golf coach. And I love Butch Harmon. He comes out with some absolute cracking biomechanics quotes. That he's got no idea that they're biomechanics quotes. But he talks about somebody turning up to a golf lesson and saying, I want to play like Tiger Woods. I want Tiger Woods swing. And he went, well, you better go and turn into Tiger Woods. <laughs> and I think we're, we're very guilty in a lot of cricket coaching of looking at different people's techniques and going, I want to be them when actually your physical properties don't enable you to be that. Um, so be the best version of you rather than the best version of somebody that you're very, or you're going to struggle to copy, if that makes sense. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I guess you mentioned you've been working with um, teams across Australia. You've worked with the uh, English women's coach as well. Um, curious, where do you generally see biomechanics? I mean, it's clear that international teams and uh, do you think domestic teams are also taking part? And are you seeing more and more youngsters being taught, you know, these basics? I mean, I, I've seen videos of Ian Bond's Academy, for example, um, showing, uh, you know, how they teach the 410, pro, uh, 410 peg approach to young kids at, you know, 12, 13, 15 years old. Um, and, you know, that's like drilling those, basics in at a young age uh, but do you see that happening around the world or do you still see the wide vast majority of people just picking the game up with natural ability and what what you know what comes naturally to them i think it's a bit of both i think um i think we're very aware at the moment in terms of how the pathway from a to b is so how do you get to elite um different organizations have called it different things i think the ECB might be a what it takes to win model. 
I think the English Student Institute of Sport have got another model, something about medals and something like that, or what it takes to medal. There's probably others in different organisations. Um, I think the IPL teams are becoming more aware of it. If you look at the media, they're trying to create positions for growing the game and their academy. They're starting to talk about academies, and obviously at the top end, they're starting to acquire teams in different countries and create franchises or brands across the world. So I think there is a current thinking of actually how do we develop technique and skill acquisition but it isn't just biomechanics it's the whole picture it's the strength and conditioning it's the tactical awareness and i think that's a big key in junior cricket in particular but it probably goes through all eight if if you bowl a ball that goes down the leg side for instance do does that bowler understand why it went down there so they need to have an understanding of some of the technical attributes of what might have gone wrong and what might have led to that and that's all biomechanics as well um so in the question of where do I see biomechanics, I kind of see it fitting in away from day-to-day applied coaching, if that makes sense. I kind of see it as you have a practitioner that sits within your organization that works with your strength and conditioning coach or your playing or skills coach. I could, I am a coach, I'm a coach, but I don't think I'd do a very good job of going in and coaching fast bowling if he dropped me straight into it because whilst I know loads about technique, there's lots of other things that go into fast bowling coaching in terms of the tactics, um, matchups, keeping yourself fit, nutrition, the mental side of the game, that a bowling coach has to have a little bit of all of these things put together. But I know I can help a bowling coach with the technical side and ask him questions that he might bounce back and forward off of me to then go and work with a player. And that's where I've been really successful. And I think the same things happen with like a psychologist within a group. Uh, they work with the players, but also the other people to understand like the char- uh, characteristics and personalities. So I think that's where I see it within these organisations. At some point, they'll someone else sort of light bulb and go, "Actually, we need somebody that understands technique and can help us and develop our players and put into place almost a pathway of how we develop technique or what we should be looking at at different stages." And I started to do that a bit with um, Matthew Mason at Western Australia. They kind of, in Western Australia, they were still looking at actions on the mixed actions kind of route and looking at players and trying to adjust them. And at that point in time, the research, which it does now, has come out, but we hadn't published it, but I had these conversations around, well, actually, we're not sure that's right anymore. And had some deep conversations about what we were seeing from the players that had been changed that were in the academy and their injury rates and kind of going, well, we've not really got that much to lose because they're getting injured anyway. So kind of like discussing, and we were quite successful in terms of turning around players' injury records by kind of letting them go back a little bit to what they were doing and just keep them in safer positions and monitoring their workloads. So all of these things, I think, need to come into this pathway long term. And I think that's where we are at the moment. We're kind of, the research is just there and people are just starting to take notice of it. But now it's kind of how do you pick up it, understand it, take the lessons from it and apply it into a, an elite sport. It's quite a difficult process with um, policy and litigation and stuff like that. It doesn't just happen overnight um, because ultimately there probably are some questions of, well, you've given me all this coaching for X amount of years based on what you thought was best. And now you're telling me it's wrong and now do it this way. Like, there's probably some questions, like some actual ethical questions there that, are quite maybe difficult for organizations to uh, discuss or think about. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one, but I think that's where we are at the moment. The research is now kind of there. It's now how do we get it in and use it and 
we need to make, make coaches aware of it, but also comfortable to use it because mm-hmm. you're going to, there will be, you're still going to get things wrong. And I think that's the, and I'm a big fan of you learn by failure, but as long as you don't repeat the same mistake twice, then it's okay. And ultimately coaching is the biggest scientific experiment of all is trial and error. You learn from these trials and it, whether it works or it doesn't work. So um, research is always behind practice. So a lot of my stuff is ideas that have come from coaches that are trying to do stuff in practice and then proving it right or wrong two or three years later. Ultimately, that's not really good enough if you've got a player on a table that needs to know the answer straight away. So you kind of have to have an educated guess and then work out whether it works or not. Um, so that's where I think we kind of are at the moment with it. Yeah, uh, that that makes sense. Uh, we we need a you know head coach or bowling coach who's who's kind of the jack of all trades, understands various things, and then has specialists or experts who understand psychology, biomechanics, and things like that, who uh, he or she can rely on. Um, so that that makes a lot of sense. Um, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. it. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I mean, I'm I'm excited to talk to you again and as you said I, I have so many questions that we could probably talk for three hours <laughs> and um no but yeah it's it's been a, it's been great having you and i appreciate the time no worries i look forward to continuing our conversations thank you for listening to another episode of the last wicket this podcast is a cricket guys production featuring your hosts benny mayank nish and himanish For more details, please visit thelastwicket.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate, and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy.